We're going to go right into our session this morning, and uh, our uh, speaker is Nikki Toyamosito, and I am uh, thrilled that she is uh, with us. Uh, Nikki has a, a serious resume, uh, Stanford-educated with Silicon Valley mechanical engineering experience and a patent in her name. Uh, she followed the call to leave the tech world and enter into Christian ministry leadership. Uh, today, she serves as the executive director of Evangelicals for Social Action, also known as ESA, an organization working for cultural renewal, holistic ministry, political reflection and action, social justice and reconciliation, and environmental care. Uh, having previously served as vice president of International Justice Mission and as the program director for the Urbana Student Missions Conference, Nikki has brought uh, creativity, a fresh perspective, and a deep commitment to mission through her executive roles. Uh, she's the author of God of Justice and one of the editors of More Than Serving Tea, Asian American Women on Expectations, Relationships, Leadership, and Faith. And these two books are actually available uh, at our book table back there. Uh, and so during the break, after Nikki's session, um, we'll have a good 15-minute break. And More Than Serving Tea, uh, I actually have both of these books. Uh, and More Than Serving Tea is a phenomenal book. And uh, so make sure you pick that up. And then uh, God of Justice, I picked this up a, a couple of years ago as well, a wonderful, wonderful resource. And so uh, you would do yourself a favor by buying every book that we have available here. <laughs> Say amen, somebody. Amen. <laughs> so uh, do yourself a favor, right? Uh, and, and, and pick that up. Uh, Nikki and I met a couple of years ago at an uh, event in uh, Virginia. And um, whenever I ask people around the country, just friends, who would be a good person to add to our Gospel and Race conference, her name came up a number of times. And so I said, well, let's have Nikki with us. And so as we did yesterday, for those of you who weren't here, whenever we get a guest at New Life, we don't just give them like a little like, oh, I'm glad you're here, uh, and a little pitter-patter here. Uh, we show gracious hospitality in our welcome. And so uh, I'm not sure if, Nikki, if this is Nikki's first time preaching or speaking in Queens, but it's her first time. It's your first time in Queens. Oh, so she's got to get a serious Queens Boulevard. Give her a Queens Boulevard welcome as she comes up. Exactly. Good morning, Queens. <laughs> Lately, I've been trying to picture Jesus. You know, really imagine what Jesus looks like. A 30-ish Jewish man. I didn't just want to slide into a lazy picture of Jesus, you know, like the ones that I find in a Christian bookstore or hang, perfect for hanging on Granny's living room wall. I didn't want a fed on mac and cheese, Jesus. I wanted to picture Jesus fully Middle Eastern because I have a question for this Jesus. Do you know what it's like to be an Asian American woman? Do you know what it's like to be me? And if you do, do you have any changes that you'd like to make to your commandments? I would read about passages that talk about leaving families and fields for the sake of the gospel. 
Do that apply to Asian families too? Passages about serving others and taking the lowest seat. Jesus, does that apply when we're already at the lowest seat or we have no seat at the table at all? Now, I know you're not supposed to make God in your own image, but I desperately needed to know that Jesus knew what it was like to be Asian American and to be a woman. Were my gender and my ethnicity just obstacles for me to overcome in order to be a faithful Christian? At the time, I felt like everything was an obstacle. This gender, this, this ethnicity that I had been given, this racial experience that I had, I had inherited a faith that was mostly informed by a Western European context. Christmas trees from Germany, Christmas trees, baby Jesus in the creche, Easter bunnies, and Easter hats with ribbons. I wanted to find the roots of my faith before it took its European vacation. Shisako Endo described the gospel as a set of clothing. And as someone who was mentored by a lot of six-foot-tall white men, I had inherited a gospel that fit them to a T. I am not a six-foot-tall white man. I had to roll up the sleeves because it was hard for me to grab things when the sleeves are so long. I had to roll up the pant legs because I was tripping over them and they were tripping me up. For example, these exhortations of only Jesus and following, finding my calling ran counter to the fact that my whole entire family was invest, uh, worked and invested in order for just me to go to college. My life was not just my own. My church called me to be a willing-to-die devotion to Jesus, this individualistic devotion to Jesus. And I raised my hand and I said, yes, Jesus. And, in my, and my family said, don't forget the people who went before you so that you could be where you are. My culture felt like a burden, like something I needed to overcome, the deficiencies of my race and my gender in order to more fully and faithfully follow Jesus as I had seen it painted. The faith I had inherited was feeling clumsy. So I went on a 30-week deep prayer journey called the Ignatian Spiritual Exercises. And the question that I held for those weeks was, Jesus, do you know what it's like to be an Asian American woman? And if so, is there anything in your commands you'd like to change? That journey sent me on a journey looking deep into my culture, deep into my people and into my history to answer that question. Are we second-class citizens to the gospel, receiving a translated gospel? Or, we are, or are we a part of the first and intended audience? Ultimately, I think I was asking God, are we invisible to you too? You see, when poll numbers list out the opinions and the perspectives of so many different groups and you're not there, it's like a little eraser just, just erases your narrative just a little bit more. When Christian books on justice have stats about all these different communities, and next to the Asian, statistically insignificant. Ask them anyways. You don't have to use the data, but just ask anyways. Ask First Nations folks, ask Asians folks, ask Middle Eastern Christians folks for their perspectives. The story of that journey, that story of that 30-week prayer journey was powerful, and, and to be honest, it's, it's, it's a, a sermon for another time, but let me share with you one, one powerful moment for me. Um, I first began to rediscover Jesus' mother, Mary. 
in the scriptures. And I began to see the role that she played. During those weeks, I was just so drawn to her story. I saw how she saw things and she pondered them in her heart. She didn't know what some of them meant, but she just tucked it away in her heart. And that felt familiar to me. And from watching her example, I began to see the invisible characters in the Bible. These are the stories of the characters that never get preached about from the pulpit. And in those stories, I began to recognize my noisy uncle. I began to recognize the ladies who sit in the front row at our church. In the stories of Acts, that community huddled and unsure, I recognized the early days of my own home church. My home church, Lakeside Japanese Christian Church in Chicago, was born out of the mass incarceration of Americans of Japanese descent during World War II. Our church started in what colloquially is called the internment camps, but really it was prison camps. There were guards and guns and wire. And our church was that place of faith and restoration. Our church is in Chicago because it was not allowed to return to the West Coast. So let's take a deeper look. This passage, um, the one that we're going to go into today, it was one that spurred me to take a deeper look to discover that God had actually put something in my own story and in the stories of my people that pointed us to him. I was also surprised to find that there are things that my people, my people understand and get about the gospel because of our social location that others don't understand. What your eyes see depends on where your feet stand and also how tall you are. So let's get into this passage. This is Paul as he has in the city of Athens. Well, Paul, uh, this is Acts 17, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So Paul is in Athens, right? Why is he there? Was it part of a strategic plan, an assessment to find out where are the peoples of the world coming? No, Paul had done what he always does. He was, he was preaching about Jesus and he got run out of town. So for his safety, they took him to Athens, and his friends finished up the work that they were doing in the previous town. Paul was hanging out. He was waiting until his friends finished up and then joined him, and then they were going to continue on their journey. What do we know about Athens? Athens is a religious town. The Parthenon is there, temples, the city is surrounded by temples, right? It's a philosophical town. This is the town of Socrates and Plato. Socrates had debated in the Areopagus. It was this thinking town, right? Athens is this town of biology, geology, cosmetology, any of the ologies that you can think of. Those started there in Athens. And Paul is there, right, and he looks around, and he sees, and he gets all hot and bothered. He gets distressed. What is it that bothers him? Is it that he can't find a decent bowl of matzo ball soup, just like mom makes at home? Is he bothered because the city is so full of congestion? The last time in Athens, this, before these subdivisions were built, this was all farmland. What was it that got him all hot and bothered? He was bothered because the city was full of idols, and it bothered him. So let's return back to the passage. So he reasoned in the synagogue. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him into the meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And I love this parenthesis. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about 
and listening to the latest ideas. So look at the public places where Paul goes, right? He goes to the synagogue, he chats with the Jews, um, he, he uh, talks to the Greeks in the marketplace. Uh, he goes to the places where people from all walks of life are. Uh, he's hanging out, right, at that giant Target that's down the street. He's hanging out at La Tienda or Ranch 99. Um, where are the marketplaces? The marketplaces in your community. The places where people gather. The places where people pass through or maybe pass out. Those are the places where Paul goes. And what is Paul doing, right? Athens is a place of philosophy, this desire for new ideas. The local hero is Socrates. There's Stoics and Epicureans. And I love this. It's the, uh, uh, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they're kind of like rival gangs of philosophers. <laughs> kind of makes you tremble, right? Rival gangs of philosophers. Both of them are curious. They're curious about Jesus and the resurrection. And it's because the Greek word for resurrection sounds an awful lot like a girl's name. So what it sounds like Jesus is saying is, I'm preaching Jesus and, uh, about Jesus and Susie Q. You're like, what is that? <laughs> what is it that he's talking about? So let's go back into the passage. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. I love this story. This is a really cool story. So Paul has been wandering around the city, right? He's in the marketplaces, he's in the synagogue, and he's got his eyes open. He got, he's got his eyes open because he's looking expectantly and curiously because he knows that there is a way that God plants his story in the stories of other people. So he's going to all these places, and he's talking to all the folks. He's looking expectantly, and he comes across this altar to an unknown God. Now, one of the things that had happened in Athens, in kind of just, just in the generation before, is that there was a huge plague in Athens. A huge plague had come through Athens, and it was just killing the population. So the people, they consulted with their priests and the religious leaders. They made sacrifices, and they did the things that they thought they could, and, the, and still the plague continued to go on, and just to destroy that town. It was devastating the population. So as a last resort in desperation because they had no idea what to do. They thought, we must have missed somebody. So they built an altar to the unknown God. They sacrificed on that altar, and the plague stopped. This community had experienced the supernatural power of God intervening in their own history. This unknown God had saved their city from a plague. The Athenians were already convinced of the power of this unknown God. Something in their history and experience pointed to God. And Paul is simply bearing witness to the way that God has revealed himself to the Athenians in their history and in their culture. He went out expectantly. He talked and he reasoned to the people, but he was listening. He was listening and he's trying to find, where is the place? I believe God was already here before I arrived. Where's the place that God has planted his story and woven it into the story of these people? And he found it in the altar of an unknown God. He was looking at their objects of worship, an unstoppable plague. We can see a lot about the Athenians by what it is that they care about. All right, so let's read on and continue to listen to the description of God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. 
And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out, reach out to, for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. From the passage we see that God made the world and everything in it. God is Lord and God does not live in temples built by human hands. How that must have sounded to the Athenians, right, who gloried in their temples that they had built with their human hands. That was part of their identity. I love this passage about how God appointed the times and places for people to live, and this affirmation that God is not far from any one of you. I had thought that because I was the wrong gender, because I was the wrong ethnicity, that I was further from God, that I had more obstacles to overcome than others. But this passage affirms that God has set our times and our places, and he is not far from any one of us. There's no hierarchy of gender, of race, of nationality in God's viewpoint. Does it feel like maybe you're a mis- it's a mistake that you are here in this time and place? What is it that God has set about for you to be here in Queens in this time and in this place? He specially chose you. Now, I want to put a big caveat here because I think it can be misconstrued that God appointed some people to have less and some people to have more, that some people were destined to be overcome and, and have their things taken from, but I think God appointed some people to certain times and places and that there are others who have taken what God has intended for people. And that gap is called injustice. Part of my organization, um, ESA, that is what we work for, is we work so that all would enjoy what God had intended for all to enjoy. That's, that's what, how we describe injustice. And in this passage, we see the places where the Athenians get, they understand the biblical truth, right? We are God's offspring. Their poets have said that. We are God's children. It's a truth that's expressed in their culture through their poets. The Athenians were worshiping a God then, and they didn't even know it. There was something in the history of the Athenians that God had acted, they had experienced the power of God. God wove his story into the story of the Athenians. He was present in their history. He saved them from a plague. He created in them a love for ideas and debates, and he presented the Jesus philosophy. He was revealed in their poetry. We are his offspring. Paul continues, since we are God's offspring... We ought not to think that, that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or the imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixated on the day on which he will, ha- the, on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead." God made the world, right? He gives all people life and breath. He made a nation for one man. Wow, no kidding, that's impressive. He determined the times and the places. Why? So that they would seek him. Notice here that God reveals himself through culture, but also look at the ways where the culture of the Athenians works counter to the values of God. God both works within a culture, but there are also aspects about that culture that do not point people to God. And that's what we see in the second portion, is the places where the gospel is prophetic in that culture. To people who, who pride themselves on debating new ideas, he calls out their ignorance. 
to people who loved making idols and temples. He calls out that there's no way that God can be formed by human hands. The passage as a whole has both an affirmation of the ways that the Athenian culture reveals God's character and heart, but also calls out the ways that they run counter to God. For those of you who've done the genogram, um, you can see this, right? As you look at the story of your family, you see the fingerprints of God in this story, right? And you, and you affirm that, ah, this is the spiritual legacy of our family. And at the same time, you also see the generational sins or some of the brokenness or the malformations. And those are the things that you say, and this generation, it stops, right? This generation, it stops. That is the work of discernment, right? So that's the same, same dynamic that we have here. So for my Asian American culture, I think one of the things that I deeply appreciate is this communal mindset, how Asian Americans live and they know and they understand interdependency. We are connected with our elders and our families extend beyond our blood relatives, right? We have a whole slew of aunties and uncles. I know that at, at different gatherings, I'll be hugging someone and then I turn to my husband and go, and who is that? <laughs> and he goes, oh, auntie? Yeah, she's a school friend of my mother's aunt. That's auntie, right? But I think it's something, these themes of interdependence, we, we get these things. There are these themes of interdependency in the Bible that I think might be a little bit more accessible for those of us who are raised in these kinds of communal cultures, right? There, uh, the Bible talks about when one flourishes, we all flourish, right? Or when one part of the body is in pain, we are all in pain, you know, the Bible talks about when one person cannot do a quad axle, we all cannot do the quad axle. The Olympics for Asian Americans is a tough, tough time. Because first of all, you're like, yes, it's an Asian American in an event. And you go, oh my goodness, I hope they don't screw up. Because if you fall, we fall, we all fall. I mean, it's, it's terrible. The U.S. In, in comparison is more of an individualistic context, right? personal salvation. Much of the Bible is actually read in the U.S. through this individualistic lens, when in reality, the Bible was written to a community of people, to be read out loud to a community of people. For example, that passage about putting on the armor of God. How many times have I heard it translated, okay, I'm gonna, put, I'm gonna get up in the morning, I'm gonna put on my armor of God, my belt of truth, my breastplate of righteousness, I'm gonna fit my feet with a gospel of peace, my shield of faith, ready to go, I'm ready to go out to my day. But instead, that passage is actually written to a community of people, and the community is exhorted to put on their armor of God. It's the difference in Spanish between saying tú, or usted, right, singular you, and saying ustedes, or another translation, y'all, all y'all, right? So that's that gift that I get from the Asian culture as I'm reading the Bible and I'm learning about God. It's a message to my whole community, not just for me to live out personally, but it's for ustedes, it's for all y'all. <laughs> what would it mean for a community of people to put their shield of faith up to, to defend against the flaming arrows? For the, for the community of faith to put on a breastplate of righteousness, which is also translated justice. My Japanese culture has a value on this meditation, on silence and contemplation, and that's been amazing to rediscover in the context of Christianity. American Christianity is so noisy. Mega churches and worship songs, stadium-sized gatherings, and I confess I've kind of contributed to some of that. Don't get me wrong, I'm an extrovert. I love that. 
but I also appreciate the way that God speaks to me through the chubby squish of a baby's foot. I'm just contemplating that. Or perhaps looking at a broken piece of pottery. There's a Japanese pottery method, a whole way of doing uh, pottery in Japan that's called kintsugi. And this is where you take the broken pieces of a plate or a bowl, and you put an epoxy on it, and in the, in the epoxy is gold dust. And so where those seams, where those broken parts are, you put this epoxy, and it actually highlights the flaws. It becomes a feature, not something to be hidden. In fact, the plate is actually stronger than it was originally because of this epoxy. It celebrates the brokenness and the beauty of the restoration that happens. And doesn't it just sound like the gospel? It actually stems from this Japanese belief of wabi-sabi, which is seeing the beautiful in the imperfect. And to me, that, does it, that rings of Jesus, Jesus who takes the broken and makes it even more beautiful. You know, we're talking about kind of a noisy Christianity, I think, as I look around this place. I was so struck by um, the, the, the stained glass words, right? Justice, brotherly love, fidelity in this room. I know you all say that this building was built that it was an Elks building, but I'm looking at these and go, what in the world did the Elks have with justice, brotherly love, and fidelity? Right? I think God prepared this building for your church. I, I, I put that before you for discernment. But the place where your preachers are preaching, it's, fidelity is the word that's right over it, right? Faithfulness. Justice. What in the world did the Elks do with Justice. I don't know. I think they threw really good parties from the sounds of the likes of it. (laughs) Brotherly love, phileo, right? The love that we have for one another, different than the love that God has for us. I don't know. I think that there might be a way, right? Can we read and hear the way that God is speaking when it's not through words? At the same time, there are other things in the Asian culture that run counter to God's intentions, Patrick Fung, he's the executive director of OMF, which is a uh, historic organization that works in China. And I was asking him about the church in China because I just hear so many contradictory things. I hear about persecution and uh, the underground church being pushed under and and being oppressed. And then I also hear stories of this vibrant Christianity and just these amazing things that are happening. So I kind of, you know, I thought the man's on the ground, he should know. I was talking to him and I I was asking him about the church and about the persecution and the suffering. And Patrick said something that caught me in my gut. He said, yeah, there is suffering and there's persecution, but those are not the main issues for our church. Suffering purifies our church. The greatest threat to the church in China is materialism. Crazy rich Asians, anyone? (laughs) So in my people, I know that there are things that we know and that we get about God. And it is important that we know and dig deep and discover God's story and our own story so that we can share that with the greater community, the global church. There's something that you know or understand about God because of your social location that I don't understand, that I don't get. I need to learn from you. And there's something that you know and understand that if you don't tell me without you, my picture of God is incomplete. And I might be tempted to paint a picture of God in my own image. So I desperately need you to know what it is that God's story is in your individual story, in your community story, so that you can share it, so that we can have a fuller picture of God. But there are also things in my culture, competing idols that need to be examined and interrogated. 
My culture both affirmed my faith, but my culture also needs bits of redemption. No one culture, no one people can fully reflect God, amen? It takes all cultures and all peoples of the world, and some would say all of creation, to fully reflect God. Are there ways that God is trying to reveal his story in your story or in your community story around you? When you look around, who are the people in your neighborhood? Who are the people at your marketplaces, your, your family, in your family, at your kid's school, in your church? Where are the marketplaces and the Areopaguses or the Areopagi in your life? The places where people gather. What are the things that you see? What stresses you and what de-stresses you? Perhaps it's the chaos in the apartment across the way, the yelling that you hear through the door. Maybe there's something in the kids that walk or ride that same route as your kids. Who are the heroes in the places where you are? Maybe it's the story of the praying grandma. What are the stories that get told? And what do those stories tell you about people? I used to work in Northern California during the first boom of Silicon Valley. And one of the stories that went around was about an uh, in eBay, that old, I don't know if people still use eBay anymore. In eBay, there was a manager, and she used to meet with one of her direct reports. Their meeting time, Tuesdays, 2 a.m. What does that say to you about the culture, right? It was a humble brag. We are racing for 1.0. We are racing to be the first to do this. We're so committed. Both of us are always there on Tuesday at 2 a.m., right? There's a way that the stories that we tell actually reveal something about our values, who are the heroes? And what do those heroes say? Origin stories are also really important. How people describe what it is. What are hum- people humble bragging about? What do you humble brag about? And what does that say about the values and what's important to you? Who are the heroes that get talked about? My mom uh, used to tell me stories, and it usually goes, Oh, Nikki, I was just talking with so and so and so and so and so and so. Usually it's, you know, and someone who's not related, but kind of not kind of related, right? She said, her daughter, see, some of you know, some of you had this conversation, right? Her daughter became a lawyer, went to this great, great school, became a lawyer, and bought her mother a Mercedes. Why? Because she was so grateful for the sacrifices that her parents had made. (laughs) Now, I speak indirect fluently, so the message was loud and clear. I knew exactly what I was supposed to do and why it was that I was supposed to do it. There's a way that these stories communicate our values. They're passed along from generation to generation. What are the objects of worship in your community? What are the objects of worship in your family, in your community? Culture was created so that they would search for God. God is not very far. To a group that experienced the miraculous stop of the plague, Paul gave the name of the unknown God. To a people bent on new ideas and debate, he presented a new Jesus philosophy. To people who valued wisdom, he called out their ignorance. This discovering God's story in our story is not just about knowing ourselves better and loving ourselves better and loving God well, but it's also about understanding and seeking what it is that our different cultures and communities reflect about the character of God. The Inuit people in the Nunavik region, they have 53 words for snow because they get a lot of snow. Matsaruti is for wet snow that can be used to ice the sleigh runners. You know, that kind of snow. Another one is pukak, for the crystalline powder snow, like little crystals. For me, I just know white snow, gray snow, and yellow snow. (laughs) But so it is with God, right? That the worship songs of some communities reflect some aspect that they understand about God, and it gives us a fuller picture of the God that we worship. 
I began to understand that my gender and my ethnicity were God's best gift to me. He could have chosen any other, but he chose female and Japanese-American as great gifts, not obstacles to be overcome. And in parallel, I began to recognize the way that God reveals his character and his heart through other communities. Through some of my friendships and relationships in the African-American community, I learned about a faith that engages with the hardest realities of the world. It's not a Sunday-only faith, but it's a -a seven-day-a-week faith. Through my interactions with Latino Christians, I learned about a lot about familia. And it was a redemptive picture of familia. Because Asian Americans have a high value for family, but really funky ways of showing it sometimes. <laughs> so the affection between a, an abuela and her granddaughter was just redemptive and restorative to me. From First Nations Christians, I learned about creator God. And I'm challenged to dismantle my faith from this capitalistic or economic models that I had accidentally imbibed. Here's one of the things that I want to challenge you all. We all are here because we are available to come on this day and think about God's story, but there are people in your churches who understand something about God that we don't understand, but they have a lot of jobs and a lot of responsibilities. They have things in their life that make it so they are unable to stop here and think. And I want to encourage you to recognize that your own faith is incomplete without understanding the story of God from people's other different perspectives, other different socioeconomic perspective, a different racial category, to the hardworking, busy single mom who has three jobs, maybe one thing you can ask her is, what name do you call God? When you pray, what's the name that you use to call God? Maybe you know what's going on in your own history, then ask the question for your community. Where's God's story in my community? Maybe you know the story, God's story in your community, then I exhort you to ask the question, where has God put his story in others? And how is it that that can expand our, our whole picture of God? I met this community of uh, Dominicans who really felt a burden for um, uh, the gospel, and uh, particularly among Middle Eastern peoples, both Middle Eastern communities, both here in the U.S. as well as overseas. And I was really humbled by this community of folks. In the beginning, we sort of joked and And they said to me, we'd like to be missionaries. We would like a laptop and a Range Rover. (laughs) And we both laughed because we both had seen what has happened in some of those different communities. This group didn't have a laptop and a Range Rover. They didn't hold a blue passport, and they didn't have the power of the mighty American tourist dollar that opened a lot of doors for them. And so their money and their passports didn't get them as far as they would like to go. So instead, they had to build relationships, and they had to receive invitations into the communities where they were. They did not have money in their pockets in order to buy hotel rooms or pay for their meals. So they had to to ask for hospitality from people in the community. And that to me popped out. As an American, I'm used to paying for my hotel rooms and my meals, jumping in a taxi to get somewhere on my own. But there's a way that they had to live in interdependency that to me reflect the very character and the stories that I saw Jesus living out with his disciples, right? As he sent them out in two by two into places, into places, into a life of dependency on the provision of God in a unique kind of a way. For some of you, you feel like there's aspects about your culture and your race that feel like obstacles, and I want to tell you that there's something beautiful embedded in your people, that God has entrusted you, you all, ustedes, with some aspect of his character, with some story that only you understand. And I want... I want to issue this invitation. We need you to share that with us because without you, our picture of God is incomplete. 
For others of you who have felt like your race or your culture is a liability, can I er encourage you who have not felt that, can I encourage you to interrogate your faith? Is this a culturally bound faith or is it gospel bound? One of the things, um, one of the things that was a powerful experience for me, um, and just a little bit of how this plays out in my own life, is I used to work in campus ministry. I used to work in campus ministry, and um, the context that I worked in uh, was on a campus, and most of the people, I'm Japanese-American, most of the people uh, in the fellowship were um, Chinese-American and Korean. And in the context of ministering there, I began to uh, understand and, and read a book called The Rape of Nanking. And I don't know how much you know of Asian history, but um, basically all Asian countries kind of hate Japan for good reason, for good reason. Um, and I delved deep into the story of some of the war atrocities that were committed um, against all of these different uh, communities, but particularly in the area of Nanking in China. And for me, it was, a, it was a really profound experience because up until that time, I was a pretty good person. You know, I felt like anything that I had done wrong, I could kind of pretty much make amends for because I really hadn't done, like, a lot of wrong. My biggest rebellious act was going into campus ministry against my parents' will. I mean, you know, like... Um, but as I delved deep into that story, it was the first time that I was encountering something that was bigger than I could make amends for. It was, so I, as I took pride in my Japanese culture, I couldn't salad bar it. I couldn't pick and choose the things that I like. I had to take the whole meal. And so while I could celebrate these amazing things in the Japanese culture, I also had to pay attention to this history that was also a part of that story. I was very fluent on the Japanese-American experience during World War II here, but I wasn't very fluent on these uglier and pretty nasty parts. So that was a moment that I discovered the power of Jesus and his ability to take things on the cross that were beyond what we could, we could imagine. That was when that became real for me. And then the other thing that was an overwhelming grace was I began to realize I've been ministering in this context of these Chinese and Korean Americans. And that it was amazing to me that given our country's history that they would actually have followed my leadership. And it was just an extraordinary grace and it was humbling. So with some of my students, I mean, this is the hop, skip, and jump version. Um, so with some of my students, we joined together the Rape of Nanking Coalition that worked to try to um, give visibility, to call on the Japanese government, to name and to repent all these things. So I think there's this powerful way that Jesus showed up in both the, these amazing ways in my story that just gave me full freedom in my race and my ethnicity, but there's also these things that needed to be redeemed. It's the same understanding of God's history and his story that continues to fuel the work that I do today. I'm compelled by my faith to fight for justice, but I am informed by it, by my own history and story. And so that's why, because of the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, that's part of what fuels me as I stand up for dreamers, because we know what it's like to register, be told to register for your own safety, and then to have that list be used as an imprisonment list. Um, it's part of the reason that I stand up for families who are being separated at the border because we understand what that looks like. Uh, my my great-great-grandparents were deported while my grandfather was a soldier in the U.S. Army. We know what those things are like to see those separated. And by all accounts, 
Besides individual people who kind of rallied against the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans, no large groups, there were no marches or protests to that action. And so part of what I am doing now is when I stand up and stand with, I am actually also standing for my family. And I'm doing what I wish somebody had 75 years ago had done for them. There's a way that I'm working out and living out God's redemption in my own story as I'm standing. And I'm trying to be a different story, a different embodiment of the gospel, so that in 75 years, somebody else doesn't look back and go, God, where were you? Right. So that's what I'm doing. So, what is your story? What is the story that God has entrusted to you individually and your family or to your community? Are there obstacles that God wants to redeem and rename as gifts? Do you feel that there's some part of your story that you have had to leave at the door every time you come in to church? I want to encourage you to go back outside that door, grab it, and bring it. Bring your whole self in. Bring your whole self in. Because our God is the one who takes flaws and makes them beautiful and more beautiful than the original. Our God is one who takes flaws and turns them into special features. We need you to know your story and to know the story of your community because without you, our picture of God is incomplete and we will be tempted to make God in our own image. Can I pray for us? Jesus, you who make all, all people, who give life and breath to all living things, I pray. Lord God, that people here in the room would have a sense of the unique joy that you have given each person, but also each community. Lord, would you help us to live our stories well and to, as a whole, reflect more fully who it is that you are in your heart? Grant us the grace to recognize the way that you have woven your story into our story. Amen. Amen. Thank you. As you're sitting around your tables, we're going to go into a time of a couple of minutes uh, space to reflect. And I want you to,、um, to ponder the question God, is there a way that your story has been written either in my own personal story, in the story of my community, or in somebody else? That you want me to sort of seek out and understand that story? Is there an invitation for you in the midst of this? So go ahead and、uh, reflect silently at your tables, and then Pastor Rich will gather us together.